Yeah, Ernie had given me, when we talked a couple weeks ago, he had given me three options. He said, you could preach on gospel-centered living. Yes, that's what my heart's about. Second one, he said, you could preach about kingdom-centered living. Yes. Then he said, or you could do Revelation 21 and 22. And my heart said, no, I do not want to do that. But my mouth said, yes, I will do that. So I'm here today. Hopefully it works out. No, it's a rich text, and I'm excited uh, to get into it. So like I said a moment ago, one of my favorite parables in Scripture, and I know I've shared this other times that I've preached, is the parable of the growing seed from Mark 4, where the farmer faithfully sows his seed, and then the text says that he's just left to wait, faithfully waiting to see if anything comes forth from the earth. And I think the reason I like this parable so much is because it speaks to our work overseas. See, working in a pioneering ministry environment among the religious mainstream, those that have never encountered a Christian before or know very little about Jesus, takes patience, perseverance, and long-suffering. It requires sowing into something. You're likely not going to see the results in a day or a week or a month. But what I've found to be true is that even in the moments where I feel most discouraged or most uncertain, I see God pull back the curtain and show me where he's at work in the present and where we're going in the future. Uh, There was one of these moments several years ago where I was heading to the Baptist Student Center where we were teaching English at the time and kind of faithlessly muttering to myself, what are we doing here? What's the point of all this? Are we ever going to see anything happen I jump on the motorcycle taxi, and it turns out that this man was a man I had prayed for weeks before, and he went on to tell me that Jesus healed my back, and now I believe in Jesus. And it was in that moment that my faith was reignited as I realized God is at work, even if I don't see him. And so as Paul said to the Philippians, it gives me confidence, giving me confidence that he who began a good work in me, in us, will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, this storyline of faith, of sowing ourselves into something that we're not sure when or how it's all going to work out, but we know what the end is, is a storyline that we see repeated over and over and over throughout Scripture. And it's where we find ourselves today in the 21st chapter of John's Revelation. Now, I've written here, we've covered the gamut of emotions over the last 20 chapters, I say we, like I've been here with you. Um, I haven't, but two weeks ago, I got to travel down to southern Thailand to visit a guy that I disciple, and I got to listen to all the sermons back-to-back on this trip. So I feel like I've gotten all those emotions, you know, in one sitting. Um, And so, you know, we've caught glimpses of the glory of the Lamb and the heavenly throne, only to be knocked back down by dragons, beasts, plagues, and bowls of wrath, even naming that off feels exhausting. But then last week, we saw in chapters 19 and 20 that our hopes were increased again as we read of rejoicing in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the rider on the white horse, and the ultimate defeat of Satan. But I feel like it's not until today, chapter 21, that the overall mood of the text shifts, where the proverbial seed that's under the soil that is just a hope Maybe a dream is finally a reality as it springs forth from the earth. So my hope today is that as we look down at the text, you guys might be looking up, but as you look down at the text, that our eyes would look up to Christ, 
that we would see him more clearly, that we could see him truly as the pearl of great price. And then secondly, that as we examine what, as Paul says, right, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and what no heart has imagined, that which God has prepared for those who love him, that God would fan into flame a fire of faithfulness, steadfastness, and unwavering hope in our hearts for the promises of God to be fulfilled, whether the wait for those promises to be fulfilled is short or long in coming. All right, because time is limited, let's go ahead and jump into the text. We should have Revelation 21, 1 through 4 up on the screen. And there's so much good stuff here. I wish I could go line by line, but we don't have time. All right, so Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is sharper than any dual-edged sword, that it's able to pierce our hearts, get down deep into the places that we need to hear it. So I pray that as I preach today, as I share your word, that your word would do its work. Speak to our hearts, whether we've walked with you for years or today is the first time we've stepped foot in a church or heard of Jesus. God, and if there's anything that I say that's not of you, I pray that it would fall to the ground and blow away. Amen. So the language that John employs here, I feel like should draw our minds immediately back to the beginning of the Bible, right? The first heaven and the first earth. Dr. John Salehammer, one of the premier Old Testament scholars, says that in that first two sentences of uh, the Bible, it's pointing towards Revelation, the fact that it says in the beginning means there is going to be an end. And so here in Genesis 1 and 2, we read of God's original creation of the heavens and the earth. And so I want us to look briefly back to the beginning so we can better understand the end. Namely, why did John say the sea will be no more? That's a, a strange comment. What we read in the first pages of Genesis is that the earth is not yet fit for God's special creation. It's dark, it's void, it's without form, and it's covered with water. Now, for the ancient Near East people of that time, the sea wasn't just a symbol of chaos and destruction and evil because it was unpredictable, uncontrollable, and dangerous. For people such as the Canaanites, the sea was home to the primordial sea monster. Maybe better yet to say the sea dragon, the serpent of the sea. We, we keep seeing this dragon come up, right, all throughout Revelation. And even in Genesis 1 and 2, it says serpent, but it's something much bigger and more dangerous than a little garter snake. Theologian Greg Boyd describes this sea monster or this sea dragon as an anti-creational agent seeking 
to keep the creation in a perpetual state of chaos. We feel that, don't we? Every day, there, darkness seems to be wanting to in, uh, encroach on our happiness. But what we read in Genesis 1 and 2 is how effortlessly God separates the chaotic waters in order to create a special place for his image bearers. Line after line, we read about how God creates and orders a special abode for mankind. And day after day, he calls his work good. But there's a couple things that I notice in Genesis 1 and 2 that I think directly apply to Revelation 21 and 22. Firstly, the chaotic anti-creational waters were separated, right? God created a place for his image bearers to live, but the waters weren't completely removed. The chaotic waters were still there on the edges. But what we read this morning is that in the new heaven and the new earth, the eternal promised land, there is no more sea. So today, if you feel like your labors mostly produce thistles and thorns, and I can feel like that at times in Thailand, and chaotic wilderness is constantly encroaching on your labors. Hold on, a better day is coming where your labors will produce nothing but choice fruit. If you feel like your days are spent futilely paddling through endless waves of fear and anxiety, or if you struggle to even enjoy the calm waters, because you're constantly concerned about the waves to come. Hold on, a better day is coming when there will literally be no more waves to battle against. The second thing I see in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically 2.17, is that death was always right there at the edges in God's good creation in the beginning. God tells mankind, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you surely shall die. So in all that was beautiful and good about the original creation, the reality was that death was still a possibility. But this morning, once again, we just read that in the new heaven, the new earth, death will be a thing of the past. Now, I'm no stranger to death, and I know that you guys aren't either, but I kind of have a strange past. Uh, First off, my mom died when I was three, but then I went on in the Marine Corps to take care of everyone that was killed overseas. Uh, not a job you typically hear people talking about, but I've seen it all. And then I went on to serve this community as a funeral director and embalmer for years, and I've seen it all. No one is immune from death. I've seen rich and poor, young and old, what's understandable and what's not understandable. My wife and I, even a few years ago, as we were seeking to grow our family, we struggled for years, and the first two babies that we conceived, they both died via miscarriage. Mankind's vast array of resources, knowledge, technology, and research seem to act as nothing but sandbags against the inevitable rising floodwaters of aging and death. Death and sickness are a shadow constantly encroaching upon our promised land. But John, once again, tells us this morning that in the blink of an eye, the impossible will be a reality. Cancer will be no more. Aging will be no more. Tears of sorrow, grief, and shattered hopes will be no more. Death will be no more. Once again, hold on, friends. That day is coming. 
Now, the third thing I want to share from Genesis, so we can get back to Revelation, is that in reading the story of the original creation, we're given the impression that this space is created for Adam and Eve. We see God walking in it, but it doesn't seem like it's God's residence. It's Adam and Eve's residence. God creates and orders specifically for mankind. And throughout the Bible, we hear this message over and over again, that heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool. And then we are constantly groaning, trying to reach out and grab God, but he always seems to be out of reach. But what John writes here is that in this future event, it's not that God is going to give this whole earth for man and heaven for God a second chance, cross his fingers, and hope that it'll work the second time around. Not at all. What he says is that we are destined to never be alone again. John sees a city descending from the heavens, but not just any city. He sees a new Jerusalem, the city of shalom, the city of peace, the city of God, the center of Jewish worship, the location of the temple where God's presence dwelled, and according to Jesus himself, the city of the great king. And we're told that in this new heavenly city coming down out of heaven from God, Sorry, this one coming out of God, it's very similar if you think back to Matthew 3. So Jesus was baptized. Afterwards, we're told the heavens were opened. And then we see the Spirit of God descending or coming down like a dove, resting on Jesus, empowering him for the work of God. That wherever Jesus went, the rule, reign, and power of the kingdom of God went also. This was clearly evidenced, right, by the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, the lepers cleansed, the dead being raised up, the poor hearing good news preached to them. So in Jesus, as the Spirit comes down and empowers him for his work, kingdom work, we're given a foretaste of what is to come. Here, this morning, we read of the real thing coming down forever, never to be separated again. We're told that this new descending Jerusalem is not temporary. We're told it's dressed like a bride for her wedding. This new creation will be a marriage of heaven and earth. Right When heaven and earth are used, it's a literary merism. It means everything. Not just heaven and earth, it means everything is going to be renewed. And here we're told it's going to be one new creation, never to be split or separated. This is further stressed in verse 3, where the one sitting on the throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now, if you're used to running in Christian circles or you've been in the church for a long time, the word dwell is one we hear often. But if not, it's actually a really rich word, meaning to camp, occupy, or reside, as God did in the temple, to pitch your tent. And it's a clear reference back to what John said in John 1.14, where John himself trying to describe Jesus' first coming by saying that the eternal, life-giving, universe-creating God clothed himself in flesh, and pitched his tent or dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson says that God moved into the neighborhood, not just for a weekend, 
not just for an intervention to fix our problems, but he moved in for 33 years. And I love how Bible teacher David Paulson sums it up. He says, God will no longer be our father in heaven, but our father on earth, right? We've all prayed the prayer a thousand times. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer will need to be changed in this coming day. Our father who is right in front of us, who we can always reach out and touch, that's good news, friends, and that day is soon coming. Now, I'm going to look back again. This seems to be a tendency of mine to go back and forth, back and forth. But I want to look back before we go forward. So I want you to turn to the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4. I think we'll have it up on the screen. In verse verse 1, we read of how Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's brought up to the pinnacle of the temple, the physical temple. And then in verse 8, we read about how the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And obviously there's no hesitation in Jesus' response. Be gone, Satan, for it's written, you should worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So not only is Jesus already Lord over all that Satan is laughably trying to trade him for his worship, but I want to point out here that Jesus clearly knows that the heaven on earth that Satan is trying to offer him, the castles, the vineyards, the food, the pleasures of the flesh, pale in comparison to the true new heaven to come, the God-centered heaven, not the man-centered heaven that we so often create in our mind. Now, to this end, a teaching I really appreciate about the context that I serve in is the teaching of not clinging on to impermanent things. And so one of the basic tenets in Buddhism is nothing in the universe is stable. Nothing is lasting. Everything eventually breaks down falls apart, youth doesn't last, beauty doesn't last, hair doesn't last, (laughs) riches don't last, amazing temples, structures, buildings, churches don't last. Love and happiness, not not agape love, not joy of the Lord happiness, but joy or uh, love and happiness that is driven by human emotions changes. It's constantly changing. And even in Buddhism, the multiple merit-dependent levels of heaven are not lasting. You might accumulate enough merit to enjoy heaven centered on the pleasures of the flesh for a period of time, but eventually your pleasure tokens run out and you're left to restart the process, hopefully here on earth, maybe in one of the hell realms, uh, maybe as an animal, you don't know. And your goal is to either have another run at heaven or ultimate extinguishment. Now, I think there's a lot of truth to this doctrine of not clinging to things that will not last. I think of don't build your castle or your house on sand. Don't try to gain everything in this world and lose your soul in the process. But this lowercase truth here is missing one thing. It's clear that the Buddha had no awareness of the uppercase truth, the one true lasting reality in all the universe, Jesus Or, as John says twice in Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, 
the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, you might be wondering, why did I go on this tangent about Buddhism? Well, maybe it's a pet project of mine. It's what I'm steeped in. But the reason is, is that the heaven on earth that Satan offered Jesus, the kingdoms of this earth and all their glory, is very similar to all the world religions and the heavens that we often come up in our mind. Right? In all the other religions of the world, heaven is always described by the impermanent, the pleasures of the flesh, bigger houses, bigger barns, more food, better food, more comfort. But I want to tell you this morning, and I want you to keep in mind as we go forward, that Christianity is the exception to this rule. The vision of the new heaven and earth that John has shown is built and described with the one lasting permanent thing in the universe, the one ultimate thing worth clinging to or setting our hopes on, and that is Christ Jesus and his glory. Now that we've looked back at the heaven on earth that Satan offered Jesus in Matthew 4, let's jump forward to Revelation 21.9 so we can see the true and lasting new heaven that John has shown. Here we're told that one of the seven angels gives John a chance to see the new heaven, the new earth, up close and personal. And so, once again, I want you to notice how similar the writing here is to Matthew 4. Jesus is led up to a great high mountain. He looks out at all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. Here John is led up to a great high mountain and he sees one kingdom. And it's the glory of God that he sees. In verse 11, the first thing John manages to get out of his mouth to describe this new Jerusalem is that it shined with the glory of God. For the next 10 verses, John tries his best to describe the indescribable that Paul talked about, what no eye can see or ear can hear or heart can imagine. John tries to describe that. And he uses comparison. Five times he uses the words like and as, meaning he can't quite grasp what it is. It's beyond what he could put words to. And so he uses the most beautiful and precious materials to describe the most basic and menial parts of this new kingdom, right? The walls, the streets, the gates are made out of gold and pearls and gems. Imagine what everything else in this new and heaven, new heaven and earth must be made out of if the gates, the streets, and the walls are made out of these things. All of the analogies employed here by John are approximate. They're an attempt to describe the indescribable, and they're ultimately inadequate in describing the true nature of what John saw. Now, the final kicker for me is verse 22. John mentions what he is surprised is absent in the new Jerusalem. The fact that he says it has no temple means he was looking for a temple. He thought there was going to be a man-made temple of some sort, that was going to be more beautiful and amazing than any temple he'd already seen. But it's not there. See, the temple or the church building is symbolic. It, it is pointing towards the real thing. 
And here we're told there is no temple, for the real thing is there. For its temple is God Almighty and the Lamb. This new creation has no need for a temple, for a sun, a moon, a lamp, for Jesus himself will be its light. Both John and Jesus are led up to different high mountains. One is led up to a high mountain and sees a heaven that is a textbook description of a heaven of our own creating, our own imagination, right? It's built with the glories of the creation of mankind. The other, John, is shown a vision of a heaven that is indescribable, beyond comprehension. In one, the glory of man and his creation and all his longings and desires are center. In the other one, the eternal glory of God shines brighter than a thousand suns. In John 4, Jesus tells us that he is the true living water that leads to eternal spiritual life and that whoever drinks of this water that Jesus gives will never thirst again. Here in Revelation 22.1, we are told that this life-giving water that Jesus freely offers us is constantly flowing down from the throne to us in the new kingdom to come. In John 8, Jesus tells us, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here in Revelation 21, 23, and 24, we're told that there is no light bearer in the new creation apart from Jesus. And by his light, the nations will walk. And then lastly, in John 10, Jesus tells us that he is both the gate and the gatekeeper. He says that if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here in Revelation 21, 25, we're told that in the new creation, Jesus, the true gate, will always remain open to receive his sheep. I could go on and on. There, there's so many great word studies you could do in, in Revelation. My time is running short. I encourage you guys to go back uh, and, and dive deep into uh, Revelation 21 and 22. There's so many references back to the Gospels and also the Epistles. But I want to end with two parting thoughts, two parting encouragements. The first is from John 14, 2. Right? Being a funeral director, I've heard this over and over in every Christian funeral. And Jesus tells us that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Friends, as we look forward to the age to come and all that God has prepared for those who love him, I encourage us to see that the emphasis is not so much on the location or the accommodation, though we can completely trust that we will lack no good thing in God's new creation, his tangible, present, real creation. But the emphasis that we see here is clearly and emphatically on Jesus. In the Father's house, in the age to come, in the new creation, Jesus is the one who has prepared a place for us. Jesus is the one who's coming again. 
Jesus is the one who's going to take us there. And why is he going to take us there? To enjoy all the pleasures of the flesh? No. He says, so that we may be with him. Just like in wedding vows where a bride and groom will communicate, doesn't matter if we're sick or healthy, riches or poverty, big house or small house, all that matters is the who standing in front of you. The same is true here as we look towards the new heaven and the new earth. The who is Jesus, and everything described here is about Jesus. The last point I want to make, and it's what I'll leave us with today, is that we're currently living in a shadow land, similar to the dark days between the, gray, or the cross and the empty grave. We've caught tastes and glimpses of the glory and splendor to come, right? We have days where we feel alive and on fire for Christ and other days where not so much. With all the difficulties, struggles, anxieties we daily face, it would be easy to assume Jesus is slow in coming. Or maybe worse yet, maybe we misunderstood him. Maybe our hopes are in vain. And I want to say, if that's how you feel or how you've ever felt, I want to encourage you that you're in good company. That was how the first disciples felt as they were standing, looking at the cross, looking at the grave. But don't lose heart, friends. The day is coming when God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, nor pain. Jesus tells us five times in Revelation that he is coming soon. Three of those times come in the last chapter. It reminds me of Jesus restoring Peter. Three times he tells him, you're back in. I'm going to use you. There's this emphasis on completeness. What Jesus emphasizes, we can trust will come to pass. We are but days away from celebrating the stone being rolled away from the empty grave. The day when all doubts of the first disciples were wiped away and all their crazy hopes, all their crazy, seemingly crazy understanding of who Jesus was and what he said he was going to do were confirmed. In the same way, there is soon coming a second Easter when the clouds, instead of the stone being rolled back, the clouds will be rolled back. And as Paul says to those in Thessalonica, Jesus himself will come down from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so I want to end with how Paul ends his encouragement to the Thessalonians. That's a hard word to say. He simply says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, that day is coming. Encourage one another that that is true. Jesus promised he's coming back. So come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise 
of what we read in Revelation 21 and 22 today. God, I'm reminded of Isaiah 17 I read this morning that said, In that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the work of his own hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. God, thank you that there is a new and better day coming that is you-centered, that is Jesus-centered. There will be no more death, no more sea, no more chaos. It will be forever. We get to enjoy that with you. Thank you, God, that those that are walking with you, Jesus, are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Pray that we would remind ourselves of that and look forward to the new creation to come, whether it be short or long in coming. Thank you for your word this morning, Jesus.